of you know Dr. Han, you've read his books, you know what a great gift he is for us. Um, I've asked him to come and to help us to know how the Holy Father looks at Scripture, interprets Scripture, and that hermeneutic of Scripture. And so if you could please give a warm welcome to Dr. Scott Hahn. It really is a, a privilege for me to have this time with you to focus on one of God's richest gifts to his sons and daughters, and that is Pope Benedict. But I also must confess that it's very difficult for me to imagine squeezing all of what I want to share into just two presentations. My students have often described taking classes for me as taking a sip from a fire hydrant. <laughs> and a lot of people who don't sit in my classes, who just might show up at a parish where I'm speaking, just, you know, I, I, I know how to present things in a popular way for ordinary Catholics, but then when I step into the classroom, it's Jekyll Hyde. It really is. <laughs> Um, and I have taught three courses thus far on the theology of Pope Benedict, focusing on the centrality of Scripture. One of them in Rome, another one for grad students, and then one for undergrads. And so for me to embark upon this process of summarizing, simplifying, and clarifying is really, you know, what I'm really saying is don't stop praying for me. <laughs> I've also taken the step of preparing a paper because I thought, well, if I don't do that, you know, I'm not going to necessarily be able to present all of the things that I want in order. But at the same time, I realized as I was going through this paper that I'm going to end up departing from it time and again. And I think you will not be sorry for that. Never before in the history of the Catholic Church has a world-renowned Biblical, theological scholar, been elevated to the chair of Peter. Joseph Cardinal Ratzinger's election on April 19, 2005, brought to the chair of Peter one of the world's finest theological minds, a public intellectual long engaged in dialogue over the critical issues of the modern period, especially the crucial relationship between faith and reason, freedom and truth, history and dogma, culture and faith. Moreover, the pontificate of Pope Benedict XVI, to a degree not seen since the medieval papacy of Pope Gregory the Great, has borne the stamp of what many observers have described as a distinctively biblical theology. For example, when in early 2007 he published Jesus of Nazareth, the first of his two-volume work on spiritual Christology, many were genuinely surprised at the note of urgency sounded by the 80-year-old pontiff. And I quote from the beginning. Since my election to the Episcopal See of Rome, I have used every free moment to make progress on this book. So in his spare time, <laughs> you've got to wonder, what kind of spare time does a pope have, you know? But the fact that he devotes practically all of it to this project clarifies just what an urgent priority it is. He continues, as I do not know how much time or strength I am still to be given, I have decided to publish the first 10 chapters. 
So from the baptism of our Lord to the transfiguration, as you know. Why? Because it struck me as the most urgent priority to present the figure and message of Jesus in his public ministry, and so to help foster the growth of a living relationship with him. Close quote. Jesus of Nazareth is not only a significant contribution to biblical Christology and theological exegesis, it also represents something of the climax and convergence of Benedict's many works as priest first, then professor, then prefect, and now Pope. Benedict's sense of the priority of Scripture was then subsequently reinforced when he called the 2008 Synod of Bishops to focus on what theme? The Word of God in the life and the mission of the Church, coming immediately on the heels of the year of St. Paul, which was just finishing up. Indeed, at the very beginning of the Synod, Pope Benedict offered the following words of challenge in his opening remarks. And I quote, listen carefully. The word of God is the foundation of everything. It is the true reality. Therefore, we have to change our concept of realism, not our concept of scripture. The realist is the one who recognizes the word of God in this apparently weak reality as the foundation of everything. Salvation history is not a small event on a poor planet in the immensity of the universe. It is not a minimal thing which happens by chance on a lost planet. Rather, it is the motive for everything, the motive for creation. Everything is created so that this story can exist. The encounter between God and his creature, between a God who reveals himself as father and shows us to be his beloved sons and daughters. In this sense, salvation history, the covenant, comes before creation. One can say that while material creation is the condition for the history of salvation, the history of God's covenant is the true cause of the cosmos, unquote. He rocked those bishops. <laughs> I mean, he is not a man given to hyperbole. Everyone who's ever known and worked with him describes him as being very balanced and a very good listener and a master of understatement as well as precision. So rest assured, this was not hyperbole. One week later, in the midst of the Synod, he surprised the Synod Fathers by giving them an unplanned and unscheduled address in which he reinforced his opening challenge one week earlier. And I quote, Today, the exegetical mainstream in Germany, for example, denies that the Lord instituted the Holy Eucharist and says that Jesus' corpse remained in the tomb. This happens because the hermeneutics of faith is missing. And what does he mean by hermeneutic? Well, it just means an interpretive approach, a way of understanding. He goes on, profane philosophical hermeneutics is affirmed instead, which denies the possibility of God's presence and activity in history. When biblical study is not theological, scripture can no longer be the soul of sacred theology and vice versa. 
When theology is not essentially scriptural interpretation within the church, then our theology no longer has a foundation. Therefore, he concludes, for the life and the mission of the church, for the future of faith, it is absolutely necessary to overcome this dualism between exegesis and theology, between human reason and divine faith. Biblical theology and systematic theology are two dimensions of one reality, and that's what we call theology. Now let me just stop for a moment and explain, because most of you don't have that much experience as I've had, as even more Pope Benedict's had, in the academy. Not only the theological academy, which is ecumenical, where we do public theology, where no confessional tradition is necessarily privileged, but even within the ecclesial setting of Catholic universities and seminaries. This is where a great chasm, a grand canyon has opened up between the way you read the Bible, using the historical method alone, or what is often called historical criticism, where you basically check your faith like a hat at the door, and then theology where you study the history of the development of doctrines, where you look at the assemblage of dogmas, and the only use of Scripture is typically to identify the proof texts that the ancients employed to justify the definitions of these dogmas at various points in history. And so for him to say that systematic or dogmatic theology and biblical theology are really one and the same might sound very radical on the one side, but on the other it, for him, represents a self-evident proposition. Because the claim that you can only be truly scientific and objective when reading the Bible, if you suspend your faith, he has described on another occasion, makes about as much sense as claiming that the only objectivity and scientific neutrality that belongs to a music critic would be one who is tone deaf. You need critical sympathy You need to actually share the faith of the authors of Scripture in order to interpret them on their own terms. That isn't just an imposition of magisterial authority coming from the Catholic hierarchy. That's the way any author expects to be read. That's the way we expect to be understood in everyday conversation. Now, all of this is not something that is only developed for Pope Benedict, say, since he called the year of St. Paul, since he finished up and published volume one, since he released just three months ago the apostolic exhortation, Verbum Domini, which distills the great October 08 synod. And I don't know how many of you have read it, but of course the the daughters of St. Paul have made it available. It's also available on the Vatican website. And it's very clear and deep And it bears all of the characteristic features of Pope Benedict's hand. This is not something that was ghostwritten for the Pope. Going all the way back, though, to the beginning, back in 05, when he was asked about his pontificate and what he considered to be important, here's what he said. Quote, leading men and women to God, to the God who speaks in the Bible, This is the supreme and fundamental priority of the church and of the successor of Peter at the present time. 
close quote. This scriptural emphasis does not, does not represent a change of perspective for Benedict, however, as he himself has characterized his entire career and all of his theology as having, quote, a biblical character, close quote. That's from his interview with Peter Seyvold in Salt of the Earth. Moreover, in commenting upon his own theological method, Benedict emphasizes the importance of biblical interpretation going so far as to say, quote, exegesis has always remained for me the center of my theological work. Indeed, he describes his own theological project as a synthesis by which he is attempting to unfold the spiritual meaning of human history as recorded in the inspired word. As a result, he is often described as being less of a systematic theologian and more as a symphonic theologian, much like the early church fathers. And now I quote from Pope Benedict, again from Salt of the Earth. He was speaking to Peter, save all the interview. I have never tried to create a theological system of my own, an individual theology. And I want to interrupt just for a moment because that's precisely what most of his contemporaries were doing. When you survey the, the scene of Catholic theology in the late 50s and 60s and after Vatican II ended in 65, most all of Ratzinger's colleagues, and not just Kung and Skillebex, those on the left, but, but Rahner and Casper and Lehman and others who were more centrist, were developing theologies that were primarily rooted in contemporary philosophy so that the language would be something that people could connect with and at the same time you could enter into this school of thought and land jobs because your mentor could help you find them. But if you ever talk to any one of a number of Cardinal Ratzinger's, Pope Benedict's former doctoral students, Father Fessio, Father Vincent Toomey, a number of others, uh, Cardinal Christoph Schoenborn, they'll always describe how his humility would lead you back to the scriptures, back to the fathers, back to the liturgy, which is where the church's tradition is living. And in fact, Father Fessio mentioned to me that uh, when he was studying under Ratzinger for his doctrine at Regensburg, Ratzinger never once assigned his own material. Now that's not just humility though, because what I want to point out is that his theology is not only symphonic, but also classical. It isn't a school of thought. You know, in my own experience as a Catholic, and I'm now getting ready to celebrate 25 years as a Catholic, I, I would characterize my experience in professional Catholic theology over the last quarter of a century as being defined by particular systems. So I studied under a Rahnerian who studied himself under Karl Rahner. And I had to spend about a month learning these words that I thought I knew, but the distinctive meanings. Then I also had a Lonerganian, a student of Bernard Lonergan, the great Jesuit who taught for many years in Rome. And I appreciated Lonergan's insight and method and theology. But once again, you had to really master a peculiar terminology with these distinctive definitions. 
And that was true for Skillebex. That was true for Kung. That's even true for Casper and Lehman and others. But it's decidedly different when it comes to Pope Benedict. Why? He goes on. I simply want to think and theologize in communion with the faith of the church. And that means, above all, to think in communion with the great thinkers of the faith. For this reason, exegesis was always very important to me, just like it was to Augustine or to Bonaventure. These were the two figures that he wrote his two doctoral theses on. I couldn't imagine a purely philosophical theology. The point of departure is, first of all, the Word, that we believe the Word of God, that we try really to get to know and understand it, and then, as I said, to think it together with the great masters of the faith. This is what gives my theology a biblical character and also bears the stamp of the fathers, especially Augustine. But it goes without saying that I try not to stop with the ancient church, but to hold fast to the great high points of thought and at the same time to bring contemporary thought into the discussion. Close quote. Here I think it's important to note how, for Benedict, a living faith is what gives the professional theologian the power to accept the scriptures as the word of God in a childlike way. And the church as the people of God, the family of God, as he so often likes to describe her. For it's only in the church that the scriptures are not an ancient text, but a living word. This, this acceptance of the church as what he calls the living subject of scripture is vital for Benedict's entire approach to theology, as well as prayer and liturgy. Again, he has expressed this with an almost axiomatic clarity, and I quote, For the Catholic Christian, two lines of orientation assert themselves. The first, we trust Scripture and we base ourselves on it, not on hypothetical reconstructions that go behind it and, according to their own taste, reconstruct a history in which the presumptuous idea of our knowing what can or cannot be attributed to Jesus plays a key role which of course means attributing to him only what a modern scholar is happy to attribute to a man belonging to a time that the scholar himself has reconstructed in a purely theoretical way. You know, he, uh, okay, I have, to, I have to confess, I have volume two, which isn't out yet for another month. You'll see it's in, it, across, the it, it's embargoed. They don't want another, you know, fiasco like happened in November with that condom quote, you know. So they're keeping it under wraps, and I shouldn't even be teasing you like I am. <laughs> but, you know, he points out in this, I was just reading it. This is why I was happy to be rerouted to Atlanta. I had an extra hour and a half to read the embargoed edition, volume two. I'm all, almost all the way to the resurrection. And, it, you know, volume one was great. This is far greater. And I just want to say that. When this comes out next month, get it. If you found the first volume a little daunting at points, this one is not. Because it really covers that ground that we need to know and we already know, but we haven't contemplated enough. The triumphal entry, the cleansing of the temple, and then, of course, the institution of the Eucharist. The Garden of Gethsemane, my, maybe my favorite part of the, of the book. And then the trials and the crucifixion. And as I said, I'm up to the resurrection now. Uh, it was tempting just to stay on the plane. <laughs> but he, he raises the point that 
Almost all modern biblical scholars, professional historical critical exegetes, put brackets around the institution narrative. They see it as a cultic etiology. That is a story that the spirit empowered the evangelist to kind of make up in order to explain the liturgy that all Christians now share. Talk about the liturgical tale wagging the messianic dog. Jesus didn't necessarily say or do these things. There was probably a meal, and that's about all we know. And, and Ratzinger just makes the point, after looking at some of these hypothetical reconstructions and these critical theories, and, and just says, you know, did the early Christians really not care what Jesus said and did? And then when these people made it up and just kind of foisted it upon the faithful, were they just simply entirely accepting without any questions? Did he really do this? He just raises such obvious questions in such a respectful way that I think it really is going, it's, this book is poised to do a whole lot of good for a whole lot of people for a long time to come. I want to continue the quote. The second orientation is that we read scripture in the living community of the church and therefore on the basis of the fundamental decisions thanks to which it has become historically efficacious, namely those that laid the foundations of the church. You cannot separate the text from this living context. In this sense, scripture and tradition form an inseparable whole, particularly in the church's liturgy. And it is precisely that that Luther could not see. He wanted to take the Bible and make it his own possession and read it, not only personally, which we all should do, but privately, coming up with whatever interpretations you might. And again, I just want to take a tangent for a moment because what he's saying, he goes on to illustrate in many other places. You know, when we speak of the New Testament, as Christians, we all know what we're talking about, but the first Christians wouldn't have known what we were talking about. Because when we speak about the New Testament, we're talking about a document that consists of 27 books. But as Pope Benedict has pointed out again and again, when you actually sit down and read the New Testament, you discover that it never refers to itself as the New Testament. But it does employ the phrase the New Testament. In Greek, that's kine diatheke. It occurs twice in the New Testament, in Luke 22 and in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. But both times the document we call the New Testament refers to the quote-unquote New Testament. What is it specifically referring to? In Luke 22, 18 through 20, Jesus, after the supper, takes the chalice. And what does he say? This is the blood of the New Testament, New Covenant. In Greek, those words are interchangeable. Poured out for many for the remission of sins, do this in remembrance of me. Paul, likewise, in 1 Corinthians 11, speaks of the new covenant in his description of the Eucharistic institution narrative. He also speaks of it again in 2 Corinthians 3, where he is reflecting on how he is not worthy to have become what? An author of the New Testament? No, a minister of the New Testament, the New Covenant. Why? Because the New Testament was a sacrament long before it ever even started to become a document. And that's one of those things that is true as a matter of historical fact, and yet historical critics seldom, if ever, acknowledge 
which should have become a century ago a self-evident proposition. So the Eucharist is what Jesus instituted when he spoke of the New Testament, the New Covenant. And what did he add? Write this in remembrance of me. No, he didn't. He said, read this in remembrance of me. No, he didn't say that either. He said, do this. Do what? Do the Eucharist. Do this sacrament, this memorial. Do this anamnesis is technical liturgical terminology referring to the memorial offering of the covenant. Do this, and guess what? All of those apostles did, except for Judas. You know, those apostles went out, and they all did the Eucharist in remembrance of Jesus. And yet not even half of them ever contributed a single book to the document we call the New Testament. So the early church seems to understand the New Testament in a way that is not exactly the way we use the term. I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Princess Bride. It's a family favorite in my home. And there's this famous line that we sometimes use, I don't think that word means what you think it means. <laughs> in fact, it wasn't until the end of the first century that the New Testament documents were being completed. But they weren't being compiled and gathered until the second century. And then they're not ever referred to as the New Testament until the second half of the second century. And the only reason they're being called the New Testament at the at the end of the second century is because of their liturgical proximity to what had always been known as the New Testament, namely the Holy Eucharist. These were the books that had to be brought out and read for the public assembly on the Lord's Day. And so that's why they end up being called the New Testament because of their proximity to the Eucharist, that which the New Testament specifically refers to as the New Testament. So to read the Bible from the heart of the church is simply to read the Bible on its own terms. And that isn't just a spiritual perspective. That is, as Pope Benedict says, a historical critical perspective, but only when criticism is properly done. And as I'm going to get into this later, he subjects historical criticism to criticism to show how uncritical the critics are of themselves and their methods. And how the answer is not to be less critical, but more properly critical. And he ends up showing that when you read the Bible from the posture of faith, it isn't just spiritually superior, it is, quote, scientifically superior because it exhibits a greater explanatory power when it comes to making sense out of the text. And isn't that the measure or the test of any theory? How much does it explain? And what he calls a hermeneutic of faith, reading the Bible from the heart of the church exhibits a superior scientific capacity to make sense out of every page of the New Testament, but also the Old. Before treating aspects of Benedict's view of the symphonic relationship between the Old and New Testaments, I need to underscore how necessary the dimension of faith in the church is for keeping theology, especially biblical theology, from descending into what he calls mere historicism or literary archaeology, where we only read texts in terms of our 
hypotheses about antiquity. For Benedict, the faith of the church is what gives the Bible its unity, its integrity, as well as its continuity. And the word of Revelation can only be understood in light of this profound unity given to it by the living subject of the church. The unity of the canon of Scripture is also something that can only be grasped by faith. Indeed, for Benedict, this is one of the weaknesses of relying exclusively on the tools of historical criticism to interpret the Bible. With these tools, one is limited to studying, quote, the individual books of Scripture in the context of their ancient historical period and then analyzing them further according to their sources. Such critical study is useful, but without reference to the church's faith, it can only yield hypotheses about individual texts. Again, parenthetically, I want to just add this observation, something that Pope Benedict himself is well aware of, that after nearly two centuries of historical criticism being touted as the scientific method, historical critical exegetes will acknowledge that they have not yet achieved interpretive consensus on the meaning of one single passage in the entire Bible, the old or the new. And whenever an apparent consensus is achieved, as he points out in volume two in a few places, within 20 or 30 years, it's washed away and replaced by another. Its conclusions can only leave us in the past. It cannot provide us with the interpretations that make sense within the totality of Scripture. And now again, I want a quote from him, an extended quote. The faith of the church does not exist as an ensemble of texts. Rather, the text, the words exist because of the faith of the church. In this regard, the basic tension between the Old and New Testaments already indicates to what an extent the truth of the faith can become accessible in language only within the inner coherence of the whole and not in separate propositions. If one strikes out the continuity of a subject which organically connects the whole of history and which remains one with itself throughout its own transformations, nothing is left. Let me illustrate. If Jews who embraced Moses and the law and all of the prophets were standing there at Calvary on Good Friday, they would not have been able to explain later on that day to friends or family what they had witnessed in the same terms that we would employ. Because in the 21st century, all Christians, whether we're Catholic or Protestant, affirm that what happened there on Calvary, on Good Friday, was what? A sacrifice. And not just any old sacrifice, but the supreme sacrifice and the fulfillment of all other sacrifices. And yet what Pope Benedict points out is that if you witness that exclusively in terms of the Old Testament and historical reason and human experience, nobody there would have been able to describe that event as a sacrifice. Why? Because it took place outside the city of Jerusalem beyond the walls. It was far away from the temple where there were no altars, there were no priests, and thus for Jews, even the Jewish Christian disciples following Jesus, thus there was no sacrifice. What was it they witnessed? A Roman execution. Plain and simple. 
How could it be otherwise if it took place outside the temple without altars or priests or liturgy? So how is it possible that within less than one generation, all Christians, not just Jewish Christians, but Gentiles too, came to conclude and share a consensus that what took place was more than a Roman execution, it was a sacrifice there on Good Friday. What Pope Benedict points out, in many places, especially volume two, <laughs> I'm doing to you what my older brother used to always do to me. <laughs> kind of teasing. In any case, what Pope Benedict points out is that the only way the early church could have achieved that kind of interpretive consensus was by backing up. You've got to rewind the tape. You've got to step away from Good Friday and look back on Holy Thursday. Only by looking at Calvary in the light of what Jesus did in the upper room with his disciples on Holy Thursday, what did he do? He celebrated the Passover one last time. But he didn't just celebrate it, he fulfilled it. But he didn't just fulfill it so as to put it to an end and terminate it. He fulfilled it by transforming it into the new Passover what early Christians called the Eucharist. And only by looking at Friday in the light of Thursday were those disciples able to finally figure out what Jesus was talking about when he declared to them, there in John 10 and elsewhere, no one has the power to take my life away from me. I have the power to lay it down, and if I have the power to lay it down, I also have the power to take it back up again. Now, he said that privately to the 12 disciples. I suspect that if any Roman soldiers had been listening in, eavesdropping, they may have begged to differ. They may have contradicted, you know, Lord, with all due respect, we not only have the power, we have the orders to take your life. But the fact is, before any soldiers ever laid their hands on Jesus to carry him away, put him under arrest, try him, and then execute him, what had he already done? According to Pope Benedict, in his celebration of the Passover of the Old Covenant and by fulfilling it in the transformation into the new Passover of the Eucharist, he had already made his life a gift of love. It wasn't taken away from him. It was freely given. And so, those disciples must have been ruminating, even in the midst of their confusion and grief. What was he talking about when he said to us, this is my body which is given up for you. Was that just rhetoric? Or when he went on after the meal to pick up the cup and say what? This cup is the blood of the new and everlasting covenant poured out for many for the remission of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. Is this just some new ritual emphasis? Is this rhetoric? Is this ritual? Or is it somehow a new reality that isn't less real but more than the lamb? and the unleavened bread, and the wine. But they weren't able to figure it out. Not until Friday, at the earliest, because that's when they realized that this body of his was truly given up for them, and that this blood was poured out for the remission of sins. But even in that grieving moment, Friday night, all day Saturday, the confusion, the consternation. We witness it when we read the Pope's favorite passage, Luke 24. Clopas and his companion, forlorn, having given up, walking down the road that leads from Jerusalem to Emmaus, 
where they meet up with a stranger. And he asks them what they're talking about. Are you the only one who doesn't know about what? And he goes on, Clopas goes on to describe this apparent failure on the part of one we thought would be the Redeemer of Israel. And Jesus just allows them to go on until finally they're done. And then instead of offering words of comfort and consolation, he says, O foolish men, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, beginning with Moses and the law and then the prophets. He opened the scriptures concerning himself and showed that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer before entering into his glory. What did he do? He gave them a, a Bible study connecting the Old Testament to the New. Their hearts were burning that whole long time that they were walking and listening. But what's so interesting to me and to Pope Benedict is that their eyes weren't opened until when? Until they stop in the village, persuade him to stay. And there at the table, he does the same four things in Luke 24 that he did in Luke 22. He takes, he blesses, he breaks, and then gives them bread. And suddenly their eyes are open, and just as suddenly he vanishes. And just as suddenly they turn right back around and walk all the way to Jerusalem. And they report to the eleven how their hearts had been burning within them, but how their eyes were only open in the breaking of the bread, and especially the eleven would have recognized it. Why? Because most likely Clopas and his companion weren't in the upper room on Holy Thursday. They didn't hear Jesus use those same four words. He didn't take, bless, break, and give it to them, but to the twelve. But when Clopas and his companion testify to how he takes, blesses, breaks, and gives it, then suddenly they recognize that the resurrection is more than the resuscitation of a corpse. It's more than the vindication of this man's innocence. It is what makes it possible for, now, for us now to do this in remembrance of him. Because if Holy Thursday transforms Good Friday from being an execution into becoming a sacrifice and the highest and holiest sacrifice of all history, then Easter Sunday is what transformed that sacrifice into a sacrament whereby we can do this like he did as a memorial offering because he has chosen to reveal himself through the breaking of the bread why? Because the Eucharistic host is not just the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Christ. It is the resurrected Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. And as Pope Benedict points out, every single time a resurrection appearance is identified as to what day of the week it fell upon, guess what day it happens to be? The first day of the week. Why not Monday, Tuesday, or Wednesday? Because Sunday is the day of resurrection but it's also the Sabbath of the New Covenant, just as the Eucharist is the Passover of the New Covenant. So the continuity of the old and the new is not just a human discovery. It's a divine gift that didn't even come to the beloved disciple there at the foot of the cross, as we read in John 19. Sure, he gets Our Lady, and from that hour takes her into his own home. But not until the Spirit is given not until after the resurrection do these men suddenly read the Old Testament with that surplus of meaning that Christ's fulfillment alone brings. So recognizing that 
the, the Bible is itself a canon. That is not just 73 books, but one book. How did that happen? It was an ecclesial enactment. The church, operating by its faith, made the Old and the New Testaments one book. But likewise, it's not just a literary continuity, it's a historical continuity. From the Old Testament to the New is one unified plan of God the Father for his family, stooping down to our weakness in the Old, raising us up through the power of the resurrection in the New. But the continuity of the Old and the New Testament is something Pope Benedict insists is not ascertainable by purely scientific means, unless it is a proper science that is open to the mystery of faith. This is what Benedict calls a Christological hermeneutic, a unified way of reading the scriptures rooted in Jesus' preaching, his miracles, but above all, what he does on Holy Week, instituting the Eucharist, fulfilling the old Passover, giving us the new, and then fulfilling the Eucharist on Good Friday and transforming that sacrifice into a sacrament on Sunday. Benedict says we must see Christ as the hinge on which the scriptures turn from the old to the new, the one that Moses and the prophets have spoken of. Read as a whole with a hermeneutic of faith, Scripture is seen to have its own dynamic synthesis that moves inexorably to the figure of Christ. As Benedict states, quote, The New Testament itself wished to be no more than the complete and full understanding of the Old Testament, now made possible in Christ. Get that. He quotes de Lubach, one of his favorite theologians, who describes how the New Testament, the literal sense of the New Testament, is a spiritual exegesis of the old. It's a spiritual reading of the old in the light of Christ, just as the presentation that we find about Christ in the New Testament Gospels is presented as the fulfillment of the old. The whole Old Testament is a movement to Christ, awaiting for the one in whom all its words would come true. But he goes on to explain how the fulfillment itself surpasses the highest hopes and the wildest dreams of the holiest Jews. You know, imagine, you know, back at the turn of the 20th century, you know, in the 1890s, I, you know, I'm living in Ohio, suppose you've got a little boy who's raised on a farm, and he sees the neighbors, they all have horse-drawn carriages, and his father's just struggling to put bread on the table, but he makes the promise, someday you'll have one of those, I promise. And then, Within about 15 years, the kid is now a late teen, and the father surprises him by giving him what? A Model T. What is the son going to say? No fair, you promised a horse-drawn carriage. <laughs> no, here is a fulfillment that surpasses the expectations of the recipient of the promise. The New Testament doesn't simply fulfill the old. The fulfillment exceeds the expectations of the holy people of Israel. And that's why the unity of the Old and New Testaments is more than a literary or historical phenomenon. Indeed, he says, faith alone grasps the nature of that unity in Christ. 
Thus, the unity of sacred scripture, what he calls the compenetration of the Old and New Testaments. Compenetration. He borrows a little bit from the Latin language that we don't know so well. Jerome uses this language. Augustine already anticipates this when he says the New Testament is, full, is, is, is concealed in the old and the old is revealed and fulfilled in the new. So they interpenetrate each other. And that's how we ought to read them, as compenetrated. Thus the unity of sacred scripture, the compenetration of the Old and New Testaments and their understanding of the light of Christ, this is the key that will unlock Pope Benedict's biblical theology. Since he reads scripture not only as a unity, or what the early church fathers called the oikonomia, the economy, but it's got nothing to do with debt or tax. Oikonomia is the Greek word literally for a family plan, a fatherly plan. So the entirety of scripture, the entirety of salvation history can be characterized as having one plot, like any good book. But whenever you pick up a book and begin reading it, you want to understand what is the plot. And the bigger the book, the more important it is to ascertain the storyline. You don't say, well, you know, it's gone with the wind. Who cares what the plot is? I'm just reading this one page. No, the bigger the book, the more important it is to grasp the unifying story. And that's God's fatherly plan. But the scriptures come in two parts. It's like a two-part play. It's the old and the new. So understanding the compenetration with Christ as the hinge and how it turns from the old to the new and it all turns in Christ, this is what Pope Benedict refers to as typology, the same as the fathers, the same as the catechism does in paragraphs 128, 129, and 130. How is the New Testament concealed in the old? How is the Old Testament revealed and fulfilled by Christ in the new? But there's a third stage that Pope Benedict wants to get us to. Besides the one story, the economy, the plot of scripture and all of history, God's fatherly plan, besides the twofold structure of the Bible, the old and the new, besides the twofold structure of human history, the old covenant and the new, we've got to get beyond the typological fulfillment of the old by Jesus way back in the first century and recognizing, recognize, as Pope Benedict puts it, that God's fatherly plan is still being fulfilled in the 21st century every bit as much or more as it was in the first. How is that happening? Well, this is where the Holy Spirit is needed. And this is where the church's liturgy is so effective. And this is why Luke 24, with Clopas and his companion, represents sort of a favorite story for Pope Benedict because it gives the church an awareness that it wasn't just in dying and rising that the law and the prophets are fulfilled. It's precisely by appearing in the form of the Eucharist, which is the New Testament, that the Old Testament finds its fulfillment. And so what Pope Benedict does throughout his career, but especially the last six years since becoming the Pope, is to emphasize the importance of the covenant. Not as a literary artifact, not just as a historical period of time, but as our own lived experience as the family of God, as sons and daughters of God the Father. And I just want to add for a moment, I, about two years ago, I was working on a paper 
that I used in teaching my graduate course in Rome for the seminarians on the biblical theology of Pope Benedict. Then I also used it and I expanded it for the graduate seminar that I taught at Franciscan University of Steubenville. And then I was invited to present it to a group of scholars at Baylor University, the biggest Baptist university in the world, the last place I expected to be invited to present a paper on the biblical theology of Pope Benedict. But I did. And they went nuts. They're like, you got to be kidding. Your pope is that scripturally saturated and that profound in his understanding and his grasp of the old and the new? And I'm like, yep. <laughs> <laughs> Last year, I spoke to over 300 Lutheran pastors invited to speak at a Lutheran seminary on the biblical theology of Pope Benedict. For about two minutes after the talk, there was a standing ovation. But I realized immediately it wasn't for me. It was for him, because they were so overwhelmed with the luminous and penetrating insight and wisdom. I want to recommend, I'm drawing from a book that ended up getting published by one of the largest evangelical Protestant publishers in the world, Baker, entitled Covenant and Communion, The Biblical Theology of Pope Benedict. I never, ever dreamt in a million years that Baker would publish this, but I thought, I might as well send it off. What do I have to lose? They not only agreed to do so, they agreed to publish it enthusiastically and got quotes from Tremper Longman, Kevin Van Hooser, Hans Borsma, a half a dozen or more Protestant scholars, all of whom are saying, in effect, we had no idea that your pope could make the Bible come alive like he does, but most especially in the liturgy where the covenant is renewed. In fact, working on this book, is what made me realize how much of my own thought is really sort of like a big student loan <laughs> that I had borrowed from the Bank of Benedict a long time ago. I won't go into this, perhaps later I can, but uh, after lunch, I, uh, I want to get into this thing here first and I'm running out of time. I'll just, I'll, one more tangent. I had resigned my pastorate as a Presbyterian minister in 83. After less than two years of ministry, I went in search of a church that fit the job description that I found in the Bible when I was reading it through the help of the fathers. And that's where I came across Vatican II, but even more, the writings of a number of Catholic theologians I'd never read before. Hans Urs von Baldassar, Henri de Lubach, Yves Congar, Reginald Garrigou Lagrange, these were my favorites. But I'd just begun reading. Daniel Liu, I don't think I'd even discovered the Lubach yet, when I'd moved to this little town where we had gone to college, Kimberly and I, and the very month that we moved in, a retired postman opened up a used bookstore right across the street from the house we were renting. He closed it down about a month after we moved. I don't know if he was an angel. But my first visit, I'm going through the books, and it's obvious this guy doesn't know how to arrange them. They're all in boxes. But there was a box in the way back that he was going to throw out. I'm like, wait, you know, what? because I was poor at that point. I was practically unemployed. I'm rummaging, rummaging through, you know, mostly Harlequin romance, you know. Then I find this battered old hardback copy of a book entitled Introduction to Christianity. How much do you want? He said 10 cents. I could afford that. <laughs> it was published by someone I'd never heard of before, but the publisher was Seabury, which is not a Catholic but a Protestant publisher. I'd never seen anything published by Seabury before, written by a Catholic. So I took it home and I began reading it. 30 or 40 pages into it, I am enraptured. I take it to work. 
The next day at lunch, I'm having lunch with my former professor who's become a good friend and a colleague of mine, and I'm reading portions of it to him. The next day, Tuesday, then, you know, I keep reading it all week to him until finally the last day of the week, he comes in waving a copy of Time Magazine. And he throws it down on my desk and he says, what's that guy's name? I said, Ratzinger. And he said, you weren't sure whether he was a Methodist or Episcopalian or Presbyterian. I got news, the guy's a Catholic. And I'm like, what? And no ordinary Catholic. Take a look at that story. Well, I hadn't told Andy, but I'd already come to the sections where it was clear that he wasn't Presbyterian or Baptist. <laughs> but he was reaching out with such wisdom that non-Catholics were drawn in every bit as much as Catholics in the first 50 or 60 pages. And there I look at this white-haired gentleman, and the caption is, the Panzer Cardinal, from the Panzer tanks the Nazis used. And it goes on to describe how he's the Grand Inquisitor. And I said, okay, so they have the same last name. It's not the same guy. I would have passed a polygraph. I, I didn't imagine that I was reading the Grand Inquisitor, only to have found out within the next 48 hours that it was. But by then I was hooked. He was just too good. And I also discovered a number of other reports about his work before he'd ever been elevated by John Paul and made the prefect of the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith. Even his opponents stood in awe and admiration of his depth, of his clarity, of his grasp of Scripture and the Fathers, East and West, the medieval and the modern. Even Hans Kung, his nemesis, recognized that he was, in effect, the youngest and most brilliant up-and-coming theologian in the German Catholic scene. I remember, uh, oh, this is a tangent off a tangent off a tangent, but <laughs> I've had four or five conversations with then Cardinal Ratzinger. I gave him a copy of my book, The Lamb's Supper, The Masses, Heaven and Earth, in German translation. And he asked me to summarize, and I told him that it's the heavenly liturgy of the apocalypse where the hymns and the songs and the sacrifice are one and the same as the Mass. And he looked at me, this was about 10 years ago, 11, and he said, you look too young to have written such a deep and, 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 and thoughtful work of theology. And I said, actually, uh, Cardinal Ratzinger, I, I'm younger than you were, I'm, I'm, I'm older than you were when you were a paratus for Cardinal Frings at Vatican II. And he smiled, he said, perhaps I was too young. <laughs> I had a good laugh. But I've come to realize more and more how dependent, how derived my own theology is, not only from Scripture and the Fathers, but especially from this Master. Why? Because Benedict reads Scripture typologically as a unity. The Bible tells a coherent story for him. It is the story of God's creation. For Benedict, this reading of Scripture, which consists of understanding the covenant in salvation history. And though he prefers to talk about salvation history rather than the divine economy, he focuses in on the notion of covenant. In fact, he goes so far as to say that the covenant is the key to understanding the Bible. By his covenant, Benedict writes, God desires to father his people, making all men and women one family with him in a communion of love. The plan of the covenant, which Benedict calls an ineffable plan of love, is the ultimate content and meaning of Scripture. This notion of covenant lies at the heart of his Christology, his ecclesiology, indeed all of his theology, expressed in his magisterial teaching that the church is nothing less than the family of God. 
unquote. Why? Because God the Father wishes to make humanity a single family in his Son, close quote. Benedict's biblical theology of the covenant synthesizes a great deal of scholarship, beginning with modern scholarly findings that, quote, the internal beginning of the Old Testament lies with the reality of the covenant as the ancients understood it. And so he goes on to present the covenant not as a contractual relationship entered into parties of equal standing, but rather as modeled after the ancient Near Eastern covenants between superior and inferior. The covenant is not a two-sided contract, but a gift, a creative act of God's love. As in other ancient Near Eastern cultures, the notion of covenant for Pope Benedict is ordered to sacred kinship, to the creation of what he describes as a blood relation or family bond between God and his people. In the biblical covenant, we see the true image of God as father and the true image of the human person as called to be a, ch a child of God. The covenant for Pope Benedict is what shows man to be made for a relationship with God as the ground of his existence. At the same time, it reveals that the covenant is who God is, an interpersonal communion of love. In the covenant, we see the perfect manifestation of God, the radiance of his countenance. Indeed, for Pope Benedict, God's covenant is, quote, the central theme of Scripture itself and thus the key that unlocks the whole of it. Covenant provides the narrative structure of Scripture with the canonical text unfolding in that familiar sequence of covenants that goes back to creation and the marital couple of Adam and Eve, then with Noah and the four couples aboard the ark that formed God's family, then with Abraham, where you have God's family expanded to a tribe, and then to Moses, where there are 12 tribes that form one national family that God is bound to by covenant. And then finally with the new covenant, which is this international, this universal family where Jews and Greeks, pagans and barbarians all know each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. Benedict reads God's covenant, his will and his desire for us as his family, from the very first pages of Scripture to the wedding feast of the Lamb at the conclusion and climax of Scripture. He does so through an exegesis that sees the parallels in the canonical text between the old and the new, and how the heavens and the earth are formed and climaxed with the marriage of Adam and Eve, and then on the opposite end, the last two chapters of the Bible describe the new heavens and the new earth and the marriage feast of the Lamb and how the marital covenant brackets the beginning and the end. It is the start of creation, it is the consummation of history, and it describes the love affair that Christ has for his bride and that God the Father has for his children. And you find all of these emphases throughout all of his writings, from the 50s and 60s through the 90s up to the present. Now I look and I see that I'm really out of time and you all are going to be hungry here in a minute, but I also wanted to uh, conclude, and I'm just going to kind of stop now and ask for questions and then break for lunch and resume when we come back. That way, I'm not going to feel like I have to wrap it up a little prematurely. But let me just ask, do you have any questions on the material covered so far or anything else for that matter? While you're thinking, I should mention that... Uh, 
I'm not the only one. A cardinal said this at the press conference a couple of months ago when the new document was released, Verbum Domini, history will know Pope Benedict, quote, as the Pope of the Word of God. That wasn't me. That was this archbishop. I see two or three hands now. In the way back. First, with regard to the Last Supper, and I ask this question because it was raised to me by someone else who um, expressed some doubt. Could um, the Eucharist at the Last Supper be considered properly a sacrifice? And the other thing was, do you have any thoughts you'd care to share about verbum domini, that post-apostolic, uh, post-synodal exhortation? Don't get me started. <laughs> I mean, uh, a week ago, I was so excited about coming here and talking all about verbum domini, and then Mark Bremley had to have Ignatius send me the embargoed copy of volume two. And it's like, you know, one eclipses the other. But um, to your first question, you know, could it be that the Eucharist was understood as a sacrifice in the institution narrative? Is that what you're asking? I would say not only could it be, but it must be. And this is what he's getting at, that when you look at the context, you cannot really reduce this to a meal. Because what was the Passover originally? It was primarily a sacrifice of a lamb and the sprinkling of the blood, which is a liturgical ritual. And only then is there a meal, but that is the sacrificial communion for the families in Egypt on the eve of the Exodus. And so it is a sacrifice, first and foremost, and only a meal because it is a sacrificial communion. Just fast forwarding for a moment, Pope Benedict points out in volume two that you don't find any evidence for the first 15 centuries of the Eucharist ever being referred to as a meal. Concerning typology and the, uh, the Old Testament being fulfilled in the New, um, I was wondering why, why do you think that God chose to do that? Well, I see that typology is beautiful and obviously has a divine author. Why didn't God just skip to the New Testament? Why did he start with circumcision and, and fulfill it with baptism instead Great of just question. going straight to baptism? I think the key is to understand what typology is. It's more than a literary contrivance. It's more than a literary device like metaphor simile. It actually is closer to what we would describe as analogy. But not just an analogy the way we might come up with one to explain this or that, but an entire analogy or what Thomas referred to as the analogy of being. Because all learning takes place through teachers working with students, taking them from what is familiar to what is unfamiliar. So how do you express what is unfamiliar? Precisely in terms that are familiar. And so when you look at the overarching plan of God as a father, you have to recognize the extent to which he had to stoop down to our level and speak in terms that were familiar to us in terms of covenant, family, fatherhood, sonship, so that when we would hear his word, we would at least begin to understand in part. But then with the coming of the son of the eternal father and the giving of his life in the new covenant, you end up discovering that God isn't just the Lord of the covenant in the sense that the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, because man, he takes care of us sheep better than any father ever took care of his kids. In the Old Covenant, Benedict points out, 
that the term for covenant communion in Hebrew, habura, is only applied horizontally to our own family relations. It's never applied to God vertically. You never say that because of God's covenant with us, we have habura, communion with him. We have it with our fellow Israelites. We are like a family of sheep for which he is the shepherd. But that's the extent of it. The Greek word for habura is koinonia. That's what jumps off the page for Pope Benedict because in the New Testament, Paul does something that Saul the Pharisee would have considered unthinkable. When he says the cup of blessing which we bless, is it not a koinonia, a communion, a participation in the blood of Christ? Whoa, wait a minute. What are you implying? That communion can now be used vertically and apply to our relationship with God, that borders on blasphemy. But there's one change that's taken place. In the Old Testament, the Lord is my shepherd. In the New Testament, the Lord is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He enters into a human family to enable us to do what we could never do on our own, and that is to enter into a divine family. And that's why he says, I go to my Father and yours in a way that was never said in the public ministry. And why he could pray in a way that not even the most devout rabbi ever dared to do in addressing the deity, the God of Israel, Abba, Father. That's how a child would address his, his dad. So there is a fulfillment that is introduced that exceeds the expectations, and yet what you discover with typology is that God was sort of creating our human experience as an analogy of something that we could never imagine. As Paul tells the Corinthians in chapter 2, eye has not seen, ear has not heard, it has never entered the mind of man what God has in store for us. Wow. Then how is he ever going to get it across? By using the covenant as a family through fatherhood and sonship. When we hear that, we're like, okay, we know what that means, fatherhood. You know, to be a father, you've got to be a male, gender, you've got to have a body, and you've got to have a particular organ and perform a particular act in a context called marriage. That's fatherhood, right? Everyone knows that except, wait a minute, God isn't a male, there is no gender in God. He doesn't have a body, he doesn't have an organ, he doesn't perform an act, and he's not married. So therefore, I guess he's not father. We're just describing him like a father. It's a metaphor. No. Therefore, our notion of fatherhood needs to be purified. This is how St. Thomas always used analogy, that you identify a link, similarity, causality. Oh, there's fatherly causality here and there with God. But the second stage, the first stage is known as the via causalitatis, the way of causality, where you see the similarities. The second stage is where you have to purify the analogy by, by noting all the dissimilarities. And as the Fourth Lateran Council points out in 1215, the dissimilarities are always greater than whatever similarities there are. Why? Because God's fatherhood is more unlike mine than it is like mine, since he doesn't have a gender, a body, an organ, an act, or a marriage. And then we finally come to the third and final stage of analogy, and that's the via eminentiae, where we take what is true of fatherhood and apply it to God to an infinitely greater degree than we apply it to ourselves. Because fatherhood is not primarily physical, but spiritual. 
It's not primarily biological, but theological. And therefore, God is not an eternal creator, because creation is not eternal, but God is. But he is an eternal father. And so from all eternity, he's eternally fathering, and that's why the son isn't smaller than the father or younger than the father. He is God from God, light from light, true God from true God, because he's eternally begotten, not made. Whereas we're made, not begotten. We're creatures. We're not children of God until Christ becomes one of us so that we can become one with him. So analogy is not just like a literary device or even a teaching tool. It becomes a divine pedagogy. The way God the Father is intent upon showing us something that he knows we could never discover on our own, but it just so happens to be the only thing he made us for. So he makes us a family on earth for a while. It might seem like a long while, 80, 90 years, but after the first 90 trillion years of eternity, that's not going to seem like such a long while. And at that point, we will have entered into the true covenantal mystery of interpersonal communion where truer fatherhood and truer sonship is, and that sonship will be conferred upon us. And we'll be marveling for all eternity the fatherly ways of divine love. What is supreme in God is not power, but love. And a love that isn't less powerful than mere power, but infinitely more. But he has to stoop down to us in our weakness and have to deal with us in our pride in order to humble us and then raise us. Thanks for your question. Has uh, Pope Benedict ever weighed in on the discussion regarding limited inerrancy of Scripture? Ah, uh, stay tuned. Because... This next week, the next issue of Letter and Spirit, the Journal of Catholic Biblical Theology that I edit, is going to the printer. It's the 2010 issue. <laughs> Do the math. <laughs> but it's not my fault, it's Benedict's, because I waited over two years for that document to come out from the October 08 Synod. It's the longest he spent on any document from any synod. And so I wanted to make sure it was out before. We have about 20 articles by all these world-class Catholic biblical scholars showing the complete continuity from the 1800s through the 1900s to the present day on how the entire Bible is inspired and so how the whole Bible is preserved from error in all that it affirms when it's rightly interpreted. But I also want to emphasize how there are many books out there that are presumably well-written and well-edited that also are error-free, but they're not inspired. And so the inerrancy of the Bible is not the primary goal of God inspiring these human writers. It's more like the negative byproduct. We know it can't contain error if the Holy Spirit is the author, but even more, it contains the truth that is there for the sake of our salvation. So the whole 400-page issue and I say that not to intimidate you, but I tell you, this is going to be historic because when he released the document last November, he states in the document, and it was said at the press conference, that in the last 20 years, you know, if you go back to 1940 to 1960 and look up the number of articles written by Catholics on inspiration and inerrancy of Scripture for 500 articles, in the last 20 years, you're lucky to find four or five no one wants to touch it with a 10-foot pole lest you be called a fundamentalist. And what he points out again and again, and what we point out in this collection of articles, is that this liturgical understanding of Scripture 
as being part and parcel of the Eucharistic worship of the church is not exactly fundamentalistic, but it is patristic. And what it does is it does what the fathers would do, and that is, of course we affirm the unlimited inerrancy of Scripture, but even more, its salvific power. So there is a quotation from a speech that was written by then Father Ratzinger and delivered by then Cardinal Frings, who hired him to be his paratus, his theological advisor and expert at Vatican II. It's in the 2008 issue of the Gregorianum in Rome, translated by my friend Father Jared Wicks. And there Pope Benedict writes as Father Ratzinger for Cardinal Frings about the unlimited inerrancy of scripture. But even more to the point, ad tuendum fidem, when Pope John Paul II put out this official binding document as to how theologians can't dissent from all of these firm and unalterable teachings, he had Cardinal Ratzinger write the, uh, the afterword. And in it, he identifies how transubstantiation, the Bible being completely free from error, the divinity of Jesus, his bodily resurrection, you're like, what? That's in that list of firmly fixed dogmas? Yeah. And so all these articles cite these and other texts too, from John Paul, Pope Benedict, Vatican II, and going all the way back, just to show that even while Catholic biblical scholars were acting as though the church had changed its teaching, the fact is the church had never changed a thing. It only deepened it. It goes beyond previous teaching, but not against a single thing. Thanks. And keep your eyes out, because that's going to end up on Amazon in about three weeks. And, you know, he did say, we need more scholars to make contributions so that we can gain clarity, because he knows that the vast majority of Catholic biblical scholars today act as though the Bible is filled with errors. And it's just not. And it's not a fundamentalist, but a traditional Catholic teaching. All right. Bon appétit.